And uh, just uh, good to have been here already this morning and trust that the remainder of our time will be, uh, yeah, a blessing and, and inspiration. I uh, am preaching a little bit out of schedule. Uh, technically, our, my turn would have been next week, but uh, we as a family are taking just a little uh, mini getaway and sort of throw a couple birthdays and anniversary together, and, and uh, we're going on a, a trip over the weekend next week. So we won't be here, and uh, it worked out better for Keith to preach next Sunday than today anyhow, so we uh, we agreed to that. Yeah, so we uh, plan to go to uh, the Niagara Falls on Friday and Saturday, and then on down to Bronson on Sunday and come back Monday. So that's the way we plan to be. Well, several weeks ago, I um, <coughs> initiated a, a series of, of messages. I'll be teaching on New Testament ecclesiology. And uh, I was uh, said that we were beginning our study uh, of this series by looking at the seven churches in, in, that are listed in Revelation. And uh, there's just several interesting things that I want to note just at the onset here. And uh, possibly for those who, who were not here the last time. But uh, just uh, sort of a, a, an overview at the beginning here. One of the things about the, the, set, the churches in Revelation is that they were congregations in Asia Minor. And they were very newborn, as it were. They were, they were some of these congregations were only 20 to 25 years old, maybe 30 years old, uh, when this revelation was given to John. And so, and, and then if you think of the bigger time frame, uh, we're only maybe about 80 years into the birth of the, of the, uh, of the New Testament church. And so we're not, it, we're, 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 we're talking about a, uh, just the inception of the, of the New Testament church, as it were. And so um, it's, it's interesting to hear and to see some of the things that were written about these churches, and to think that they were as new as, as what they were. Uh, some have interpreted the uh, reference to these seven churches as seven different stages of, of church history. But that sort of seems unlikely since, since there is disagreement among, among the interpreters of Scripture as to what part of Revelation... Uh, represents which period in history. I think a better interpretation and the position that I'll be teaching from is that these seven assemblies are examples of the kinds of church that have existed through history and all the way up until this present moment. I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from them. I think they're given there for our to our reference, to see that of, of the kinds of churches that have been present in, in the past and even right up until this moment. And then based on that position, it leads us to the third conclusion, and that is that the seven letters are warnings to every church at every age. Um, I'm not sure why that's not behaving itself, but for some reason it's not. Um, anyhow, uh, 
we can, uh, I, I think we can be, we can be represented if, if we really believe that, if we really believe that statement, that it's a warning to every church of every age, then that would include Berea. That would include our congregation. And uh, if that is correct, then I think it begs us to ask two questions, two very honest questions. The first one is, what commendation would God, God have for Berea? What, were the, what would be the good things that God would say? about this congregation. I'm just personalizing it. I'm, I'm, I realize here that we have visitors here from other congregations. Apply it to your own situation. But for us here, what would God say are some good things that are happening in this congregation? I think we need to know that. The second question that I think we need to ask ourselves is what are the warnings that would be applied to Berea? What, where are we lacking? Where do we need to improve? What are the areas that we can raise the standard? And those, I think that's something that we need to ask ourselves. I think it's good for us to ask ourselves. Because if we are diligent, not only to ask ourselves those questions, but also to act upon in a response then I think there's hope for the future of this congregation. However, if we take the attitude that, hey, we're fine, thank you, we don't need any help, or we, we don't, we're, we're doing good the way we are, then I think we're setting ourselves up for failure. Let's not be lulled to sleep like so many have in the past who fail to recognize that their condition could be in jeopardy. And... Um, and I think one of Satan's lies, when he can't get us to trip up just right out front, when he can't get us to fall for his lies, is to lull us into a state of complacency and performance that appears right on the outside, but inwardly we're full of men, uh, dead man's bones, like Jesus said, like Jesus bumped into when he bumped into the scribes and Pharisees. Where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. We don't want to end up there. I'm certain, I'm, I'm confident that every one of us here today do not want to end up there. And so, one of the best proactive defenses is to have an offense plan. And we do this, I think, by recognizing that perhaps some of these warnings apply to us as a congregation. And uh, we, we take these warnings seriously and we move forward upon them. Well, last message, why we looked at the Ephesus of yesterday. And uh, I just, to sort of jingle our memory, uh, what were some of the things that we, 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 we looked sort of at the history of Ephesus, the stage in which this church was birthed. And what are some of the things that come to your mind about Ephesus? Who recalls some of the things that, that, were, that highlight the place of Ephesus? Wealth. Yes, indeed, it was wealth. There was wealth. Lots of wealth. And because of why? It was the crossroads. There was a lot of trade. They were right by the Aegean Sea there. And, and of course, the, one of the reasons was because of their, the, uh, the, uh, 
the, the fact that they had this, they, they worshipped the goddess Diana or, or Artemis as it's referred to a lot, a very pagan worship. And it was the heart and the strength of the city. And, and, and these, these, uh, these priests of, of, of the temple, and by the way, the temple was, uh, was built in to, uh, to Artemis and it became one of the seven wonders of the world, a magnificent building. And, and the people, the, the priests had convinced the people that, that Artemis was able to take care of their, their wealth. And so the people would bring their money and, and they, would, they would deposit their money at the temple and then they in turn loaned the money back out and they made it at, at, a, at a high rate of interest. And so they became a very wealthy people. Uh, the city did. Uh, the, 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 um, but there was also a lot of immorality, a lot of immorality with this pagan type of worship. Ephesus was to Artemis worship. Think of it in this way. Ephesus was to Artemis worship like the Vatican is to Catholicism. It was sort of the seat of Artemis worship, the pagan worship. And, and so it was, very, it was a world-famous religion, uh, religious, cultural, and economic center of, of that region. Very, very uh, prestigious. Somebody made the comment that it was the stronghold of Satan of that day. But possibly, well, let me, before I go into that, let me just, let me just sort of encapsulate that, that whole uh, dynamic of that city. You know, sometimes we just, we just think that, that evil and wickedness and debauchery cannot get any worse than what we face today. But I still believe we have been very sheltered from what many of them have experienced in the past. And, and this being one of the places, I mean, I, I, I don't, according to a lot of the studies that, I've, that, I've, that, I've, that I did, even previously, I understand how wicked and sodomite and, and just extremely uh, lucid and, and immor immor uh, immorality just abounded. And so it was a very dark culture of that day and the and the inspiration is that out of that darkness was birthed an ecclesia a church jesus said i will build my church and when he said it he meant it and the gates of hell the gates of hate shall not prevail against it it will not be able to withstand the church of jesus christ so men like Paul and Apollos and Timothy and uh, Aquila and Priscilla and later on the Apostle John were men who were very influential in, in seeing this, this church being birthed. And uh, they would teach and walk with others into spiritual adulthood. And, 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 and all of a sudden there was this body of believers that came shining out of that darkness that's an inspiration to me. Well, that's a glimpse of Ephesus yesterday. Today we want to focus a little bit on Ephesus today. And when I, when I talk about Ephesus today, uh, bear in mind that I'm talking, I'm, I'm sort of switching gears, and I'm talking more about the church of Ephesus, but then also in how it relates to a, 
uh, the, 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 the churches in the past history and even today and how it relates uh, to the, the kingdom of heaven today. Ephi- the, how, how the Ephesian church relates to the modern church. Let's read the passage of scripture in Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. Read it on the PowerPoint in your own Bible. To the angels, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have uh, persevered and uh, have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you also that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There is an obvious spirit being that is represented in the structure of authority under which a church operates and functions. Now, the extent of that function, I'm not entirely sure. It's certainly not clear in Scripture what all their their responsibility is. But they are signified as a star. In in chapter 1, we would see that they are distinguished as a star. Now, interestingly enough, that according to... 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 2 and 3 in the kingdom in the eternal kingdom those rules will be reversed because in that passage of scriptures it says that that the believer will judge the angels and uh, so uh, again we're not entirely sure what all their function is perhaps Jesus is addressing a spirit that is that is permeating the culture of this congregation. But what we do know for certain is that the, the, the letter was written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. One of the things, that the other thing that I see in this, in this verse, it says, these things says he, and it's referring to Jesus, these things says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now I take great comfort to know those two phrases. That Jesus holds the seven stars and he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks or the seven churches. The word hold there has the idea to use strength. That is to seize or retain. It has the idea of grasping and hanging on with determination. Wow, you talk about the church being secure in Christ? That's it. Think of Jesus Christ holding us securely with his strength, hanging on with determination. And in his right and and, and he's right in the middle of what is happening. He's walking in the midst. 
He doesn't just show up for Sunday morning or when the emotions get stirred. He's there all the time, every hour of the day, in every situation, and he has a complete understanding of what's going on in every circumstance. I had to think, when I thought about that, I had to think of the verse over in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that says, and I'm just breaking in because I don't have time to go into the entire passage there, the whole text there, but I'm breaking in, and it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may comprehend, and it goes on to say, where's the length, the breadth, the depth, and the height, and on and on. I have a little note in the side of my Bible. I've underlined the word dwell, and on the side of my Bible, I've got a little note that says, um, make yourself at home. That's what that word dwell means. Make yourself at home. To the believer, Christ makes himself at home in the heart of the believer. He is right at home. And so I take incredible comfort and inspiration in that thought that Jesus holds us securely. He is right at home in our hearts. And he's walking in our midst. And this is why he can execute a sound judgment on the church of Ephesus. Because he holds them in his hands. And he walks in their midst. He knows all about them. And as he observes them, as he hangs out with them, as it were, he observes several very positive traits of their congregation. And this is what he notices. Nine, to be exact. He notices that, he notices their works that they do. Their labor that they're involved in. Their patience. He knows that they couldn't bear those who are evil. And they have tested those who say they're apostles and have not found and, and, and are not and have found them to be liars. They have persevered. And again he mentions the fact that they've been patient. They have labored for the sake of Jesus Christ and have not become weary. And then the last one is that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans or the Nicolaitans. And I'm not going to talk much about that because we see that coming up in one of the other churches. And I'm going to talk more about it at that point. Now listen, if Jesus were to speak that list about this congregation, how would you feel about yourself? It would sort of be hard not to feel a little smug I mean wow well, we're doing some things right but as we as, and, 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 and it even increases as we as we break some of these some of these phrases down and, and understand some of the deeper meaning let's let's just go back through that a little bit when he talks about their work and their labor of love the word labor means a cut that is to toil as reducing the strength and pains. Somebody made the observation that, that their, labor, their labor was unto weariness. Jesus recognized that they worked hard for the Lord and had godly endurance. They hung right in there. And, uh, and, and by the way, 
Works is how we express our love for God. We, we, don't, we don't work to, to gain merit and favor with God. We do it out of a response of our love for God. It needs to be very clear. But if there's no works to follow your faith, what do you have to offer? He goes on to, to, the, to the next one where he talks about patience, and that means a cheerful endurance. You know, I've often told my children that a person can, can almost endure anything if you know that there's end in sight. When you know that, that something's coming to an end, you can sort of endure about anything. Many humans have endured significant trials and, and troubles and tribulation in this world. And struggle. But there's a huge difference between a teeth gritting, fist clenching endurance and someone who endures cheerfully and without complaint. A person of this character trait is someone who is rock solid. They've got something way beyond themselves. And that's, I think, what we see with this group of people. They couldn't bear those who were, were evil and, and tested those. I think we see the Ephesian church pursuing a doctrinal purity. They were concerned that those who came into their midst, they tested them. They used the instruction that Jesus said by the, to, to check the fruit and, and to, to test the spirits. And uh, those who claim to be messengers of God. In fact, if we go back in the book of Acts, chapter 20, when, Peter, when Paul was leaving the church of Ephesus, he gave this warning to them. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for, every, for, that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so possibly his previous warning to them may have helped them to be decisive and discerning when it, when it came to, to weighing out theological soundness. I think the warning still applies for us today. In fact, Jesus gave a, a very similar warning to us today in Luke 21, verse 8. It says, Take heed to you not to, uh, not, sorry, take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. And this is talking about the end of times. This is in the, in the context when Jesus said that these are going to be some of the signs of the time. There are many teachers amongst us, many good teachers amongst us, many people that have a lot to offer. And so how do we distinguish? How do we judge? How do we, how do we know? And, uh, and, and, and just maybe for a practical bit of advice, one of the good rules of thumb that I use on how radically I go after some of the teachers that are among us is to ask myself the question, would I feel, would I feel comfortable putting myself as a member of his congregation, as a member of his, uh, being a congregant of his, of his church? 
Would I feel comfortable putting my family in that, in that, uh, in that place? And maybe that would help give a little bit of guidance. And again, not saying that there are many out there who don't have a lot of good to give. But I think it, we need to choose wisely. Because how much we value certain individuals certainly has profound impact on those who are walking after our footsteps. Well, the next thing that I see, or the, one of the last things that I see, it were, is where it says that they, they persevere, they are patient, they have cheerful endurance, they've labored for my sake. But the phrase that really caught my attention is where it says, and have not become weary. I can't help but respect, have deep respect for older people who have battled a lifetime of Christianity or battled Christianity for a lifetime and, uh, and yet remain faithful, ending well. Um, that's an inspiration to me. They didn't grow point, at least not to the uh, weary. They didn't grow weary, at least not to the point of giving up. And, and, and so when I see that happening with older people who end well and have fought the good fight, uh, that's an inspiration for me to do the same for those who are following my path. And so we would certainly ask God to give us grace to be able to do that. Well, this was the testimony of the Ephesian church. Their tireless pursuit to live passionately for Jesus Christ should be applauded. Many people thought, as they looked onto this church, hey, this is a happening church. But then we have the word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. After all these compliments, nevertheless. And the idea is, despite all that, it's actually a pretty sobering thought when you think about it. Jesus took into full account. Remember, he, he held them. He walked in their midst. He knew all about them. He took in full account of all the good that the Ephesian church had done. Yet, despite that, he had something against them. Nevertheless means that all the good that the Ephesian church had done, did not cancel the bad that Jesus is about to describe. And what is it? You've left your first love. You've left your first love. Now I want you to note that, that the love is, is left and not lost. And, and I think the distinction between leaving and losing is important. Something can be lost quite by accident. But leaving takes a deliberate act. Now in the last two, three, four years, I don't know, I've had a terrible time with losing my watch. And... Uh, uh, it shows up in, in the craziest places. I don't know who puts it there. Um, whenever I tell Glad, ah, I lost my watch, where is it? She just chuckles and 
It'll show up. And, you know, a couple, I don't know, a year ago, I couldn't find my watch. I looked high and low, and I tried to think. And, you know, after a, after a couple days, all of a sudden it occurred to me. I remember we were sitting on our camp chairs out around a fire, and the cup holder, I mean, that's just the size of a watch. Why wouldn't you put a watch in there? That's what it's for, isn't it? Went out there and looked, sure enough, there it was. But I lost it. Um, I didn't know where it was. When we lose something, we don't know where to find it. But when we leave something, we know where to find it. The Ephesian church once had love, but they left that in exchange for something else. By the way, we do not live our lives in a vacuum. When or if we leave agape love, it will always be replaced. And the replacements are far too many to count this morning or to mention. There's possibly as many replacements as there are people. I don't know. The what in this case is not nearly as important as the why. Asking why the love was lost is by far more important than trying to figure out with what is or what replaces it. Why did they leave that love? Why was agape love not enough for them? And that's the question we need to ask. Now, most commentators and study helps would suggest that losing your first love refers to the initial fervency that you had for God when you first came to know him and that growing dim or cold. That's the way that this phrase is, is looked at most often. And while that might be the case, and certainly it could include that, I would like to take you deeper this morning. Ray Vanderlaan suggests that the first love is not who you love first, but rather what is the first expression of, or obligation of love. Since, since this is a church problem that, that we're dealing with, uh, I'm going to assume that we're, we're talking to Christians. Is that a fair assumption? If this is a church problem, it's, it's no use having this conversation with unbelievers, right? So, so as Christians, then we're already going to love God. The problem, the said problem with Christians is not so much loving God as it is loving my brother. But that creates a huge problem because our expression or our first obligation as believers is to our brother. I want to take you to the book and show you what the book says. John, or Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. Jesus said to him, this was in response to the young ruler who came to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? 
And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, we're assuming that this is already in place because we're talking to Christians. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You want a surefire mission program, one that works? Here it is. By, all, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. John 15, 12, and verse 17, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you that you love one another. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. <clears> Owe <throat> oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The only obligation that we should have is to love each other. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What more do you need? God has taught us that. 1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have purified your souls, and I'm breaking into this verse, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. 1 John 3, 11 and 23, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And this is he, His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. I mean, just over and over in Scripture, this commandment keeps coming up. Love one another. Love one another. 1 John 4, 7, and verse 11 and 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Second, uh, 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. So that verse almost makes the distinction that, that people try to love God and, and not necessarily their brother. 
or sister in this, and we're, we're, we're including, it's all inclusive. But, but he's coming back and saying, uh-uh, that's not possible. If, if, if you say that you love God, he who loves God must love his brother also. 2 John 1, verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I write a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. See, somehow in, in, in the church of Ephesus, somehow in their, in their zeal and in their, in, their, in their passion to love God, and, 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 and staying doctrinally pure, they only became a shell of a church. And if I would have had the time, I would have taken all nine points that God used to commend them, and I would have built the structure of a church in the shape of a church building to help us visualize <laughs> what a congregation can look like. Now we know that the building itself is not the church, but it would represent what we're talking about in the church. In the last couple of minutes, I just want to, I just want to, I want to shoot really straight with you, if I may. I've testified to you previously that, that my heart leaps for joy when I hear those in the congregation blessing each other, and I've seen a lot of that, I've heard a lot of that happen in the last years, uh, spouse to spouse, child to parent, parent to child, brother to brother, sister to sister, and I, I am inspired by that. I, I appreciate it. I really mean that. That means a lot. And I think we need to keep promoting that. But my heart laments at times when I hear someone speaking easily against another person in the congregation. And I know that I've been guilty of this sin. And, and right up front, I would like to be the first person to be held accountable. And I really mean that. If you hear me say something negatively against another brother, not only in this congregation, but another believer in this community or otherwise, that you would pull me aside and say, James, I, I heard you speak negatively about this person. I, I really want you to do that because I don't want to be that kind of a person. And I need that. I need you to help me, to keep me accountable. Psalm 141, verse 3. I didn't, I didn't put this on the PowerPoint, but if you want to jot that down and just look at it and underline it in your Bible, it's a good verse to remember. Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lip. How much better it would be if we would pray that prayer every morning when we get up. And throughout the day, God, watch what I say. Help me watch what I say. But I'd also like to challenge you this morning. Who in the congregation is it that you roast over, over Sunday lunch 
we go home and, and talk about a person or people or individuals. How easily is it for us, how easily is it for me to speak of another brother or a sister to another individual against them negatively? How easy is it for me to do that? Sisters, what about, what about you while you're doing your charitable deeds at the sowing? Who is it that you talk about? And according, according to 1 Corinthians 13, those charitable deeds will amount to nothing if we're guilty of this sin. And so I'm just asking the question, what attitudes or actions do I harbor towards a brother or sister that has negative energy? You know, we don't even have to speak with our mouth, but our actions can give off that negative energy to someone else. Do we as a congregation speak derogatively against any of our sister congregations in our community? And if we do, we've got to stop it. We've got to quit. That spirit is not of Christ. We have to deal a final blow to that spirit. <clears throat> the call for us is to repent if we're guilty of this. And um, God said that concerning the Ephesians, and I think it relates to us as well, as individuals or as a congregation, that if we don't repent, he says, I will come quickly and remove that candlestick from its place. I don't think we want to be there. I believe more than ever, we need the love for our brothers and sisters to permeate our hearts. Let's not be found guilty of losing our first obligation. I think that's what happened with the Church of Ephesus. They lost their first obligation. Their first obligation, obviously, outside of their relationship with God, which is, which is what we're basing this upon, is to love each other. And somehow they were able to do all the other things right. They worked and they labored and they toiled and they were patient with cheerful endurance. They were, they were doctrinally sound. And yet, it only became a shell because the, their, their primary obligation was lost. They left it. It wasn't lost. They left it. I think the best way to express our love for Jesus is revealed by how much we care and love our brother. Let's pray.